the sweetest sound on earth to me. The one sound I, that I'd rather hear than, than anything is to hear my wife laugh. And um, I really mean that. And uh, the saddest sound on earth to me is to hear my wife cry. There's no doubt about it. We've all had uh, times that we you know, we felt the world closing in on us and we felt the burden more than we could bear and we didn't know what to do, where to go. And we need to remember that when we're going through a time like that, that God has counted the very hairs on our head. That He knows absolutely every little detail of our life. Think about that. That nothing escapes his notice. Whatever you're going through, he 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 already knows about it. Not only that, when you don't even know how to put your feelings in words, have you ever been there? You don't even know how to pray. You don't know what to say. The words just won't come to you. And the Bible says that he hears the groaning of our heart, and he fashions a prayer out of our groaning. And then he puts our tears in a bottle. Wow, what a great God we serve. And I know we all face those times where it seems like I can't get through this. And we have to go back and rely not on our feelings, but on the facts, the facts that are revealed in the Word of God, which is this, and that is that God's grace is sufficient for every single need. I want you to turn with me this morning to the book of James, chapter number 5. I've often said that the most difficult part of preaching is not study and preparing the message not delivering the message, but knowing that you have the right message for the moment. And, and there, there are sometimes, you see, God doesn't work like we do. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And you know, if I looked at my ministry like a doctor does at his vocation, he might examine all of his patients and and prescribe what they need based on the diagnosis of what their problem is. I'm afraid some preachers have fallen into that trap, you know. Uh, I, I'm going to preach this, this, you know, this week because I know so-and-so, you know, that this happened and that happened, and boy, you want to get to bouncing around all over the place and drive yourself crazy. That's a good way to do it. That's not the right way, however. And I've got to tell you, there are a lot of times when I don't have a clue why God wants me to preach a certain message. Because there are times that I feel like there would be something else that would be a lot more appropriate for the moment. And yet, it's as though the Lord is saying to me, no, 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 that, that, this is what I want you to preach. All week long, I've had one verse that just, I mean, God has just hammered me with it. And I want you to notice what James says in verse number 16. I'd love to take the time to go through this entire chapter, but but I can't. I don't want you to lose focus of what we're talking about this morning, which is the power of prayer. But notice verse 16, confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know, I've been impressed by and interested in prayer since the day that I was saved. In fact, the very first sermon that I ever preached was on the subject of prayer. And that interest in prayer was born out of a deep sense of desperate 
need in my life. I, I knew I needed God. I knew that I was inadequate to meet those needs. I was in desperate need of God. And I still am. And as a young preacher, I began to read everything I could find about the subject of prayer. I'll never forget when I come across the little paperback copy of a, of a message by E.M. Bounds called The Power of Prayer. And then I found one called The Purpose of Prayer, and eventually I discovered that he had that entire series of messages on prayer in one volume. I have two copies of it in my library, and if you don't have a copy of it, you need to get one. It's the best thing, in my opinion, that's ever been written on the subject of prayer. E. M. Bounds. Can you imagine what a sorry state we would be in if we didn't have the privilege of prayer? Let that sink in for just a minute. I mean, that's a scary thought. To think that God just all of a sudden decided, look, I've given you life, I've given you help, I've given you what you have in your bank account, I've given you everything you've got, and I'm going on a long, hard-earned vacation, and I'm just going to leave it all with you as it is. Don't, don't call me, I'm not available. <laughs> I'd be scared to death. I don't think I'd want to get out of bed. I mean, what would we do if we didn't have the privilege of prayer? But think about it. We are in no better shape if we do not avail ourselves of that privilege. If you're not praying, you're not any better off than the atheist. Now, I'm talking about you're not any better off so far as the things of this world goes and coping with the problems you have. You understand that, surely. The atheist doesn't have any power in prayer. He doesn't have that privilege. But as a child of God, we have the privilege of going before the throne of God and finding grace to help in a time of need any day, time of the day or night. I'm amazed that anybody would have to be encouraged and instructed or commanded to pray. You know, the old timers spoke of the disciplines of the Christian life. And prayer, of course, being one of those major disciplines that we all need to engage in. But it seems strange to me that you would have to encourage someone to pray because... I, I know from the moment that I got saved, I knew I needed God. And I've never come across the day yet when I come to the conclusion, well, Lord, I don't need you today. I, I, you know, I've got it all under control. Just leave me alone. Don't bug me. Don't, you know, just leave me alone. I, I, I've got it, Lord. I haven't found a day like that yet because every day there's something to remind me that, that I can't do it alone. I need God. And our needs ought to drive us to our knees. Prayer makes a difference, folks. That's what I'm trying to say, a big difference. And time and time again, over all just almost a half a century now, time and time again, Bev and I have found ourselves in desperate situations and found God's help through prayer. It might be something that was personal to us. It might be something that involved our family. It might be something that involved our church family. But in desperate situations, not knowing where to turn, what to do, how we could ever possibly get out of this or any good could ever come from this. And the only thing we knew to do, the only thing we could do was just pray. And we prayed and God answered Prayer. Now, because prayer is so important, it behooves us to learn all we can about it. And, uh, you know, we try to simplify it so many times, and we end up, I think, oversimplifying some things. One, one well-known preacher that I knew personally, in fact, and he, he, he used to say that prayer is simply asking and receiving. Well, yes and no. 
It is asking and receiving, but there are a lot of other factors involved in prayer that we need to be aware of. And I want you to notice here in our text this morning, and there's several things we could mention, but I want you to focus on this first phrase of verse 16 where he says, Confess your faults one to another. And, and the reason this has been on my heart all week is because I, I'm, I think I'm convinced that this might be the most neglected and most needful aspect of prayer. Consider the call that's given here. He says, confess your faults one to another. That word confess means to acknowledge, it means to admit, or it means to agree. And that demands a couple of things. It demands that in doing so, that we number one, that we be honest about our condition. That we come into agreement, that we are acknowledging. And notice how he describes what we are to acknowledge. He said we are to confess our faults. That particular word faults is most often in the Bible translated into the word trespass. It means a deviation from the truth or from that which is upright. A deviation from what is upright. And it's also translated offense. In other words, he's talking about our sins, our shortcomings, our trespasses. And notice he says, I want you to confess these one to another. That means mutually. It's not all one direction, but we reciprocate. That, that I confess my faults to you and you confess your faults to me. And i got to tell you, that's about the last thing most of us want to do, right? Because, man, Sunday morning comes along and, I mean, it's uh, spit and polish. I mean, you, you shine your shoes and you comb your hair and, and you, you know, you get all cleaned up and, you know, that that sort of characterizes the manner in which we want to be perceived in everything about our life. We want to come across as, as though we've really got it all together, that we're really, a you know, a good person. The last thing we want to do is to say, wow, look at me as I really am. I am a mess. Let, let me admit to you what my faults are. We don't want to do that, and yet here we see that there is a call for us to do that very thing. Now, another thing we need to consider about this is there's some confusion. And we don't want to, I don't want to confuse you. The Catholics tell us that this refers to our confession to a priest. Well, that can't be the case because notice here, he's talking about a mutual confession. He's not talking about securing forgiveness from God. I like what old Harry Arnside said many years ago to a Catholic priest. He said, I'll confess my sins to you if you'll confess your sins to me. Well, that's fair enough, right? Listen, Forgiveness with God does not come by confessing your sins to man. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. He is the only one, the only way. He's the truth and He is the life. And so surely we don't want to fall into that trap of thinking that we're going to get things right with God by confessing our sins to other people because it just doesn't work. On the other hand, there are those that would say, well, we ought to just confess our sins to everyone. And by the way, it's true that there are certain occasions where we ought to publicly confess our sins. But let me tell you, there are times when some things are better left unsaid. I'll never forget, I was preaching down in the hills of Kentucky somewhere, 
And I was all hot and lathered up and just really ripping in the snorting and made some statement about the fact, talking about repenting of your sins and what have you. And, and some way or another, I mentioned the sin of adultery. And I said, and, you know, surely nobody here is, you know, guilty of that. And one fellow in the back stood up and said, I am. He said, I, 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 I'm guilty. I've been doing that. I never had that to happen before, but... You know, it was kind of refreshing. Probably the only honest guy in the congregation. But but I don't really think it was necessary for him to stand up in front of everyone and admit it. So what is this stuff about confessing our sins one to another? And if we're not to just confess our sins to the whole world, if we are to limit them, where do we set the, the limitation? Where do we draw the line? I think the circle of confession ought to be as big as the circle of offense. If you have sinned and it is public knowledge in the church, it ought to be dealt with in the church. That's very clear in the Bible. There are times that because of our conduct we owe our church, the body of which we are a part of, we owe them an apology because we have given the church a black eye, ruined its reputation in the community. Now, now remember, that doesn't make it right with God. You make it right with God by going to Him. But there are times that we need to acknowledge that in the church. That doesn't mean you get on a soapbox and out here on the corner somewhere and tell the whole world. Because what happens in this church is nobody's business outside these doors. Not only that, I think the wise thing to do is to take into consideration who all is affected by the confession of your sin. A man jumps up and says, yeah, oh yeah, I'm guilty of adultery, you know. And uh, can, can you imagine the impact that would have on the little children? We tell you, Mom, Dad, don't you ever discuss and fuss and fight and rant and rave in front of your kids. You need to be taken to the woodshed and given a spanking yourself if you do that in front of your children. Don't ever do that. If you're going to have a knockdown, drag out, get in the room and lock the door somewhere with soundproof and go at it, but don't you drag it out in front of those kids. And just because your husband or your wife failed you, you don't need to go in there and tell the kids, your daddy or your your mother is rotten to the core. They're no good. I think I'm going to leave. But still we're faced with this, this call or command, whatever you want to call it, that we're to confess our sins one to another. And we also need to take this in the context. And if you read verse 14 and 15 as well as what follows after verse number 16, it's obvious that the context has to do with the subject of prayer. And it's especially related to intercessory prayer for other people. So keep that in mind, confessing your faults one to another. Why would we do that? What's the benefit of it? We're thinking about the effectiveness of our prayer. And whenever we acknowledge our faults before one another, it does at least two things. Number one, it might secure reconciliation between you and somebody else. You might be shocked if you knew how much turmoil was going on in the lives of church members that that root of bitterness in people's heart towards somebody else and they're not going to admit it. They would deny it. They would explain it away, excuse it away or whatever and yet it's there all the time, 24 hours a day and every once in a while it oozes out and the rest of us gets to see it and it's there. You better go home and read Matthew chapter number 5 where the Lord says, when you go to bring your gift to the altar and remember there that your brother hath ought against you, you leave your gift and you go first and be reconciled to your brother and then you come and offer me your gift. You're not going to have power in prayer when you've got bitterness in your heart toward other people. 
And if we're going to secure reconciliation one with another, we have to be humble enough that we'll be honest enough to confess our sins instead of trying to point out their faults and failures. But then it does something else. Not only does it help us to secure reconciliation, but it also has a way of arousing a spirit of sympathy and earnest prayer from the other person. You see, if, if, if I don't know anything about your needs, I don't know anything about your problems and what have you, I really, I really don't know how to pray for you, do I? And if you want to just pretend like everything is A-OK, everything's perfect in your life, you know, you, you go right ahead. But if you want God's people to pray for you, there are times that you have to admit that you dropped the ball, that you failed, that you have sinned against God, that you have hurt others or whatever that fault is. There are times that you need to confess that. And let, let me tell you something. The devil tries to convince you that in doing so, you're going to be so embarrassed that people are never going to like you again. And let me tell you, just the opposite is true. The people that matter most, that care the most, will love you more than ever before when you're honest enough to open up to them and with a tear in your eye, you say, please pray for me. I just cannot control my temper. I had another fit last week or whatever the sin is. And it has a way of just drawing out that sympathy from them and getting them to pray for you. Let me ask you a question. How long has it been since you witnessed anything like this? I mean, we come every week, we hear a sermon, we, we hear somebody pray, we hear music, we sing. How long has it been since you heard someone with a broken heart stand before the congregation and pour their heart out and say, folks, please pray for me. I, this, this is my problem right here. And I'm willing to stand up here in the spirit of humility and admit that I have failed miserably. I, I need you to please pray for me. Well, I, I've got to tell you, it's not very often you see anything like that. But better yet, let me ask you, how long has it been since you did something like that? You see, a lot of times we expect to see things that we're not willing to do ourselves. You know, we expect other people, whenever they sin, you know, they ought to get up in front of the whole church and tell everybody, I did this and this. But boy, when it becomes personal, what they did, you know, they want to keep that as quiet as they possibly can. The whole problem is sometimes some folks act like they don't have any faults. We do. Listen, that's why so many people are so repulsed by Christianity. That's why they call us Holy Joes and so forth. Because sometimes we come across like, oh, I don't have any sins. All of the problems with other people, I don't have any sins of my own. So that's the context of us confessing one to another. But notice the command. He says, pray one for another. I can't help it. I, 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 I just cannot keep from wondering how many times when somebody says, please pray for me, that we, we say, look, I, I'm so sorry you're going through that and I'll be praying for you. And, and, and then we forget all about it. And we all know that happens. But it probably happens a whole lot more than what we want to admit. Or, you know, like probably a lot of you, like me, you keep a prayer list in, you know, in, in your Bible and you jot it down, got my long list of names on there, and you've got the name on the list, but you don't have their name in mind and you haven't prayed for them in months and months. Am I right or wrong? I think I think most of the time, most of us are guilty of that doing doing that very thing. And yet the Bible says pray one for another. You look around this room, and I'll guarantee you, you can find somebody, somebody that you've never prayed for. 
Oh, I know you prayed, oh dear God, bless Lakeway Baptist Church. We just pray that souls will be saved and folks will be added to the church. But there are some folks you never prayed for specifically. And yet we're commanded, pray, he says, one for another. And that implies two things. Number one, we cannot be selfish. This word for, the Greek word for, simply means on behalf of or for the good of. So we can't be selfish when we pray. We're praying for their good on behalf of them, praying that God will bestow His blessings upon them, especially those that have been injured or those that have injured others. Pray for them. But not only should we not be selfish, we should not stop. Because this particular Greek verb, pray, is in the present imperative. That means that our prayer ought to be continual. We should never stop praying. I like what Samuel said to David, God forbid that I should sin in ceasing to pray for you. Don't stop. Maybe you're thinking, oh yeah, but things are better. I think things are getting ready to take a change for the better. And I, you know, I can just stop praying. No, don't stop. Keep praying one for another. Notice the consequences of this. He says that ye may be healed. Now it's clear the primary meaning here has to do with physical healing. Oh, we get sick and we run to the doctor, don't we? I'm not against doctors, don't misunderstand me. But listen, a lot of times I think we could avoid the problem with the doctor if we didn't have a problem with the Lord. You've heard people say, you know, well, if you don't pray, you're headed for trouble. No, if you don't pray, you're in trouble already. You're in serious trouble if you're not praying. And sometimes you'll notice that the, the sickness is the result of sin. And unless we're willing to confess our sins and pray for our healing, we can't expect healing. But listen to me. God is able to affect healing in other ways. You know, God, God can heal a, a diseased body. But God can also heal a broken heart. The doctor can't do that. He can give you a bottle of pills or he can do surgery or something like that. He can't heal your broken heart, but God can. The doctor can repair a broken bone, but God can restore a broken relationship, a broken home. He can put divided churches back together. You see, God's healing power doesn't just manifest itself in a physical way, but in absolutely every way that relates to the needs of our life. Think about that. He is our divine healer. Somebody said, well, do you believe in divine healing? Absolutely. I think that's the only kind there is. Now, notice the condition. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now that's instructional and it's inspirational. Isn't it exciting to think about the things that God has done? Well, I look back in my life and I think about things that God has done that I never imagined and it's like, wow! Or I look in the Bible and I notice verse 17 and Elias speaking of Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain <laughs> and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit Boy, that, that excites me to think about what God has done and then it excites me even more, I think, whenever I think about what God can do. And if you read verse 19 and 20, he talks about that. The things that God can do. God can convert the sinner from the air of his way. God can save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Think about all of the great things that God can do, and that ought to motivate you to pray one for another.
Now notice here that this is the result of a righteous man's request. It says that it availeth much. If we really knew how much depends on prayer, we would never fail to pray. I believe that with all of my heart. If we really knew how much depends on prayer. You've heard me say, you know, pray as though everything depends on it. Because it does. It really You can't do anything effectively without prayer. It's crucial to our welfare, crucial to our walk in absolutely every way. And it requires two things, and I'm through, and listen carefully. First of all, it requires a request. He says, the effectual, fervent prayer. James said in chapter 4, verse 2, we have not because why? We, don't, we ask not. And so many times we expect God to leap into action and to do something in our life, and we haven't even prayed about it. And we get all bent out of shape and wonder, well, why didn't God do this? Why didn't God do that? And we've never asked God to do it. Or if we did, it was one of those, you know, one of those fleeting prayers where we say, oh, yeah, dear God, supply all of our needs, and we just move on from that. You know, there might be a time for that kind of prayer. You know, you sit down to eat, and like I was, who, who's I eating with? Was it Lexi or, no, it was MJ. And we stopped at McDonald's, and you know, whenever you're praying, and he had heard me pray in the church and at home and stuff like that, but he and I sat down to, for, you know, eat at McDonald's, where kids like McDonald's. So we got home, and he said, uh, said boy, he said, Papa must not have been very hungry because he had a really short prayer. <laughs> and... Uh, so, you know, there's a time for that. But let me tell you, folks, there's got to be some time during your day where you take time to, I mean, really get down to the nitty-gritty, as it were, and make your request known unto God. Be specific about it. Even when it comes to confessing your sins, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, notice... You cannot do that by saying, oh yeah, and dear God, forgive me all of my sins. That's not confessing your sins. He's talking about itemizing your sins, dealing with each one specifically. Make your request known unto God. But notice there's something else, another factor. This is the one I think that gets overlooked the most. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. That's the key to effective prayer. Now listen very carefully. I don't want to confuse you. When we talk about being righteous, we need to look at that in two ways. Number one, we need to consider our standing before God. If you are a Christian, God has wrapped you in the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. You stand justified in the sight of God, not on the basis of your own righteousness, because you don't have any, but on the basis of His righteousness. That's why the Bible says, He is our righteousness. Amen. That's your standing before God, and it never changes. You'll never be any more a child of God than you are right now. You have an eternal relationship with God. But there's also not just, our, not just our standing, but our state. And when we talk about being righteous, that has to do with our conduct, our manner of life. That has to do with us walking uprightly before the Lord. And the problem is, sometimes our state doesn't match up to our standing. Because in our standing, we are perfectly righteous in the sight of God, and yet in our state, there's sin in our life. And the Bible says, and your sins have withholden good things from you. 
When we entertain known sin in our life, God shuts His ear to our prayers when we do that. Our need is just as greater, greater. We beg and we plead and we do everything except confess our sin to God and make it right with God. We're talking about a man who is called a righteous man. Elijah, I don't mean perfect. He wasn't perfect. I'm talking about somebody walking uprightly before the Lord. Sometimes with all that's going on in our world today, we hear people say things like, we've just got to get more people to pray. And you know, that's great. The the more the better. But let me tell you, getting more people to pray is not what we need the most. We need the prayers of righteous people. Because the other kinds doesn't matter. They're not helping. You see, there is absolutely no inherent power in prayer itself. Somebody says, prayer changes things. No, it doesn't. Prayer doesn't have any power on its own. The power is in God and prayer is simply the means whereby we access the power of God. Yes, prayer changes things in the sense that if our heart is right before God and we go to God in prayer, that God changes things. That's where the power is. It's with God. And notice, he says, it availeth much. In other words, it can accomplish anything that's within the realm of the will of God. Elijah said, uh, you want to see some evidence of God? I'll show you some. It's not going to rain for, what, three and a half years? And God answered that prayer. Then he turned around and said, well, I think it's time for some rain. You know, somebody might have said, oh, you, you crazy preachers don't know what you're talking about. It hadn't rained three and a half years. Man, what makes you think you can do anything about it now? And he prayed and it rained. Look, I'm telling you, regardless of what impossible situation that you're facing, regardless of what your need in life is, what battle you're going through, what foe you're facing, what weakness you have, regardless of what burden might be, you might be carrying this morning, regardless of your difficulty that you're facing, I'm telling you that the prayer of a righteous person can absolutely change the landscape of your life. It availeth much. I said at the very beginning, I just do not understand why God has put this burden on my heart for this verse at this time. I can think of a dozen things easily that I would, that I really rather preach this morning. Things that I think you would be more interested in this morning. And it's as though God just keeps saying, no, this is it. This is it. Let me tell you, in the last six days, each day, each day becoming more and more and more obvious, God has shown me why I needed to preach this message. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, we've got the greatest church in the world, there's absolutely nothing wrong here, we're as near perfect as you can get and what have you, let me tell you, you're in trouble. And we're in trouble as a church if we think that way. We are constantly in desperate need of God answering our prayer. I'm not talking about David and Melissa O'Quinn and the needs with their children. No, that's included, absolutely. I'm not talking about giving Brother Ron far back 100% his good health, even though that'd be glorious. And you, you know, that list can go on and on. I'm talking about things that 99% of you don't know a thing about. I'm telling you that we need to pray. We're either going to pray or we'll go down in defeat one or the other. That's true not only of a church, it's true of individuals. 
I, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what your need, all of your needs are. I certainly don't know what all your sins are. But I'll tell you, if we're ever going to get serious with God, there comes a point in time where we've got to be willing to confess our sins one to another and to pray one for another. It's essential, an absolute necessity. Victory and defeat depends on our attitude toward prayer. I'm glad I serve a God with whom all things are possible. I didn't make those comments to discourage you. I said those things to encourage you. We have every reason to be optimistic and excited about prayer. It availeth much. But we've got to meet those conditions. And it starts with being honest and humble enough to do what God requires. Let's all stand together. It might be this morning that there's someone here that's never trusted Christ as their Savior. I want you to know that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. I want you to understand that you could become a child of God today. And if you've never been saved, you might as well forget everything I've just said about this matter of prayer. Your need is not answered prayer. Your need is Jesus. The shed blood on the old rugged cross. The forgiveness of God. That's what your need is today. And we're so thankful that during Vacation Bible School there were some that come to know Christ as their Savior. We have some even that are awaiting baptism and In fact, four of them, if you would be dismissed at this time and you go ahead to the dressing room, I'll meet you up there in a little bit. But there are others perhaps here that God's speaking to your heart about what He wants you to do. It it might be baptism, church membership. It might be, hey, it really might be somebody just in a broken state ask the church to pray for them because of whatever. But whatever it is God wants you to do, you need to do it. Not tomorrow, but right now. While we sing together, you come and meet us here. Come on. I have decided to follow Jesus.
Amen. Listen, this is what we've been needing to see, folks. This is what we ought to expect to see every single week. This is what we need every day. church this morning. I've got four folks up there waiting for me and that's all right because I'm not in any hurry. I hope you're not in any hurry uh, whatsoever. And uh, even with those four being added, we've got others and Brother Kenneth is going to introduce them to you and take the appropriate action at this time. All right. Wow. What a great morning. Let's just get started first with we have Becky Phillips, and she would like to come and be a member of this church. Uh, her letter is at Second Baptist Church, and she would like to come to Lakeway as a member here. Motion, thank you. Motion, we accept. All right, Brother Ray, you got a second. Um, all in favor, show the hands. All opposed, like sign. All right, let's keep on going. <laughs> We have Andy Briggs who has come this morning, and Andy's membership is at Northeast Houston Baptist Church. He'd like to become a move his letter and be a member of Lakeway Baptist Church. What's the pleasure of the church? Okay, got a second. Okay, all in favor, show the hands. All opposed, like sign. Okay. All right, we also have his wife, Ashley Briggs, and she comes, and her membership is at Northeast Houston Baptist Church. Uh, she wants to become a member of Lakeway here. Okay, got a second. All right, I'm not playing a game here. I feel like auctioneer. Everybody's so excited to receive you so quickly. Uh, who, who wants to receive them more? No, I'm kidding. But 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 all in favor, all opposed, like sign. Amen. Amen. And, and by the way, Andy and Ashley's son is about to be. Aiden is about to be baptized here in a minute. So praise the Lord. You know, the Lord, the Lord saves and thy house. Amen. That's that's wonderful. Oh, my. Well, and, and just Tim, maybe you need to sing again, you know, and in and, and just thinking about prayer for a minute, uh, my, I can't add anything to what a great message that was, but my heart was stirred and I just thought about something. It's really hard to be upset with someone you're praying for. You know that? Anyone who has wronged you, pray for them. There's a good answer right there. It softens your heart toward them. But not only that, it's easy to see how much we're depending upon the Lord, truly depending on Him based on our prayer life and how much we're praying. Think about that. When you are discouraged, count your blessings in prayer. Go to God with thanksgiving in your heart, no matter what's going on in your life. It will lift you up. You know, when we confess our sins, not just as he said, not saying, not saying, God, forgive me for all my sins, but in detail, listing these things out, it takes the fun out of it, it takes the fun out of that sin. So praise God for the power of prayer and all it does in our lives. At least the, it's the access to God working. I think we're going to baptize now. Praise God. Four. her last week and the fact that she had trusted Christ as her Savior. And it's always thrilling and exciting when we see people make a profession of faith and, and then be willing to follow the Lord in baptism. Mm -hmm. Upon a public profession of your faith and in obedience to His command, I baptize thee, my sister, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, planted in the likeness of His death, raised in the likeness of His Amen. Let's 
Just one of them Anderson boys. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I tell you, we're so so proud of the way Mark has come and got these boys in church. And so Amen. just wonderful Amen. seeing what God's doing in their lives. And, and uh, we're excited for them. Upon the public profession of your faith and in obedience to his command, I baptize thee, my brother, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, planted in the likeness of his death. Raised in the likeness of the Lord. This is Aiden Briggs, right? Did I get that right? Don't you do one of those cannonballs. <laughs> Upon a public profession of your faith and in obedience to his command, I baptize thee, my brother, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, planted in the likeness of his death. <laughs> <laughs> trusted Christ. He's going to tell you about that tonight. Yeah, and I you won't want to miss it either. Amen. It'll be a blessing to you. Upon a public profession of your faith and in obedience to his command, I baptize thee, my brother, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, planted in the likeness of his death, yeah. raised in the likeness of Something, do something to be a blessing to each and every one of them. Tim, sing another song or two. All right. Well, you know where we're going. 554. 554. I'll fly away. Yeah, we're going to push that one. I'll fly. 